From America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn, and this is Deliver Us, a podcast about the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church and where we go from here. This is the fourth and final episode in our mini-series with survivors. This last story is about a man whose spirituality helped him heal from abuse. But like the other stories we've heard so far, the details of sexual abuse are troubling to listen to. Hi, my name is Michael Mack, and I was baptized into and raised in a devout Catholic family, and the church was really the center of my life. I I was an altar boy, I was a choir boy, and I wanted to be a priest because it was clear to me, two things really, that there was an esteem given to priests by everyone in my family and all of the people that I knew that you didn't see anywhere else. It was almost like priests were kind of celebrities. And also because I just had a, a natural spirituality that, why well, I just wanted to give full flower to that. It was really not until I was 10 years old that I developed a special relationship with a priest. What was this priest's name? Gordon Anderson. Michael refers to his molester as Father Gordon Anderson, but that's not his real name. Michael decided to use this pseudonym in order to protect Father Gordon's family. He took me to my first basketball game. This was indelible in my memory of the two of us sitting side by side on the bleachers as he was explaining how the game was played, and I just felt really special. Yeah, he was my friend. Right, right. How did the abuse begin? In the spring of 1968, I had served at Mass in the morning and I came back in the afternoon on my bike. I I like to just hang around the church. The church was unlocked and so I went into the church and I just hung out inside, went downstairs to the Sunday school and there was a piano up against the wall. So I sat down and I started to play. And after a little while, I noticed our priest standing in the doorway. And he told me that he was working on a very special project, that he was making costumes for an Easter play. And did I want to help? Are you kidding? I would love to help. And so I followed him upstairs to the rectory where he lived. And he closed the door behind me. And my life took a different turn. I remember leaving after that afternoon and feeling this, how can I put this? I felt special. I felt disgusted. I felt frightened. I felt that there was some kind of special relationship we had now. How long did this play out for? Like, how long was he molesting you? One long afternoon. And strangely, I never saw him again. Mm. He left town a few days later, and 
my family left town because it was near the end of the school year and so we were all moving back to northern virginia to start a new life up there okay yeah did you tell anyone at the time oh no first of all i had no idea that it went beyond me it would be decades before i had a sense that sexual abuse was something that happened to people other than me. It was not until 2005 that I did a Google search on the name of this priest and got some results on the first page and learned that he was not only still alive, but he was living just a few miles away in Massachusetts. Wow, that's incredible. Was he still a priest? Uh, no. He had faced a couple of allegations, uh, had spent time in prison, uh, so he was no longer allowed to practice as a priest. And so what did you do with that information? I decided to just spend some time to really craft in a one-page letter what I wanted to say, and a part of my healing journey would include a conversation with him. I had gotten a lot of help and support from therapists, from friends and family, but there was one piece that remained and that piece was a conversation with him. And so some months passed, I felt inspired to take the letter out to where he lived. I knocked on his door, no one answered, and I thought about leaving the letter in his mailbox, but decided not to, that I could mail the letter at any time, and so I decided to wait. Michael waited a couple of years before he attempted to deliver the letter again. And then I was leaving town for Thanksgiving, and so I felt like, well, I'm leaving town, perfect time. I grabbed the letter off the mantelpiece, threw it into my car, stopped it in a mailbox, popped it in. And I um, checked my voicemail while I was at home on Thanksgiving, no calls, got back home, a couple of weeks later, no letters in my mailbox, and within a couple of days, I learned to my horror that he was just killed in a fire in his home. And so I felt like, well, I have to do something. I spent this whole time doing nothing, now I have to do something. And so I jumped into the car and I went out to his neighborhood and I thought, well, I'll, I can't talk with him now, but I could talk with a friend or a neighbor and I could learn about him. And so I started knocking on doors in the neighborhood and introducing myself. And so I started talking with them. And in the process, I learned about his funeral. It would be upcoming in a few days. And so I went to his funeral and it was there that I met his best friend, a priest. I met another friend of his, also a priest, and visited a Catholic church for the first time at that funeral in a long, long time. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you to be at the funeral and surrounded by his friends and family? It was weird because here I was at the funeral mass of my abuser, of a man who had used his power and authority to take advantage of me in the worst possible way when I was a child, when I had no way of defending myself. So as you can imagine, it was very complicated, but it did awaken within me this recognition that there was something in the church still here for me. Mm. And I didn't know what it was. I couldn't explain it or understand it, but there it was. 
something else happened at the funeral of his abuser. Michael spoke to Father Gordon's best friend, another priest. And this priest, who Michael doesn't name, agrees to have lunch with him. So I had just started chatting with this priest who was quite aged, and he was friendly and invited me to go have lunch with him. And I thought, well, this is great. I couldn't have asked for anything better than this. If I can't speak with Father Gordon now, I can talk with his best friend. It took about 45 minutes to get there. We sat down for lunch. We ordered. And while we were eating lunch, there was something that this priest said in passing reference to Father Gordon's issue. He called it his issue with children. And it's like, you know, I can't let that go. And it was in the course of that conversation that I shared with him about my history with Father Gordon. He was, as you might expect, a little taken aback, but gracious and listened with great understanding and warmth. It does sound like this pastoral encounter that you had with Father Gordon's best friend, that it did seem to offer some kind of healing. Would you say that's true? It began it. Okay. It began that process, or I should say it was a step in that process, because when we said goodbye, uh, we made plans to meet again. And I imagined this to be an ongoing conversation that we could have. And I felt like he could be kind of an instrument of healing for me Mm -hmm. and that I could be an instrument of healing for him. I mean, he had just lost his best friend in this uh, tragic circumstance in a fire. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. So did you follow up and have more conversations with this priest? Uh, Did follow up, and we planned on meeting again, and then things got weird. Things got weird because this priest suddenly had to leave the country to care for a loved one for a few days. When he was due to return, Michael tried to connect with him again. And I thought that Father Gordon's best friend was back in town. I gave a call. I had a recorded message saying that the number that I dialed was not accepting calls from my number. Oh, so he had had sort of blocked you. Uh, Yeah. And I started thinking about the sequence of events, and it occurred to me, well, he got together with his brother priests and told them about me, probably. And I imagined that they said to him that, you know, this is not going to bring you any good. Who is this guy getting phone numbers and asking questions? He could be a reporter. He could be working for a lawyer. Like, get rid of him. That's what I imagine. So Michael tried reaching out to another friend of Father Gordon's, who he had met at the funeral. And I got the same recorded message. The number you dialed is not accepting calls from your number. So, who are these guys? I asked myself. And I asked Google. Got online. Did a little research. And I didn't find anything on the aged priest, uh, Father Gordon's best friend, just one mention of his serving at a wedding. But the other guy, different story. A number of individuals had brought complaint against him, one of them saying that he was part of a group of priests who met in a house and played what he called Pass Around the Boy. And I felt something I had never felt before. I felt outrage. 
an uncontainable anger. That somehow, when I had thought about my own case, I could dismiss, I could find workarounds for. I, I, I could not somehow find in myself the compassion for myself, for that little boy that I was then. But when I heard it in somebody else's story, in this particular story, I felt a sense of outrage and disgust that I had never felt before. And I think that that also was a healing and necessary part of the journey for me. Michael's healing journey doesn't end with outrage. A few months later, Michael is traveling for work, and he finds himself a few hours from the parish where his childhood abuse occurred. So he takes a detour. The church has since been converted into a community art center, but the curator is kind enough to show Michael around. And everything is exactly as he remembered it. In the flooring, in the stained glass that remained, in the configuration of the church, everything that I had remembered as a little boy, I went down to the Sunday school, same thing. And then I mentioned to her, the curator, that the rectory was just uh, one flight up. Could I visit? And she said, oh, well, that's our office now, but uh, yeah, come on. So she took me up and climbing the stairs up to the rectory, what had been the rectory, and opening the door and going in and seeing the very same wood floor and the very same windows looking out on the very same trees. And it all just came flooding back to me. And I was so grateful to see that it was still here, that it could validate what I had remembered because these memories of mine I had carried for decades and they were cemented in my mind. And there were moments that were so clear, so vivid and so precise. I had wanted to believe all this time that they were true. And so to see them validated in this architecture, in this building, gave me great comfort. And I happened to see in one of the windows that there was a cardboard cutout. It looked like a life-size cardboard cutout. And I asked the curator about that. And she said, one of their uh, kids, one of their boys had done a little portrait. And if I wanted to go outside, I could see it. So I went outside to the back parking lot and I looked up to the window, what had been the rectory window. And what I saw was a self-portrait of a boy. And of course, of course, the little boy that was looking out that rectory window was me. Do you mean that you saw yourself in him? I mean, quite literally, did you see yourself there? Oh, absolutely. It was like time disappeared. There was only one moment. And there was the moment of now, which included the moment of then. It was all one experience. I want to just interrupt for a second, Michael. As you're telling the story, there are all of these incredibly profound encounters as you describe them, some of which you, in a sense, pursue or seek out, you know, like locating Father Gordon and visiting this old church, and some which seem to come visit you, and each one is somehow a part of your healing process. 
But my question is, do you feel exceptional as a survivor who has had these opportunities to heal, to reconcile, to experience some kind of grace? Does that feel exceptional, especially when compared to the stories of other survivors who have not had these encounters? I couldn't possibly use that word exceptional. What I can say is that when I was a little boy, I wanted to be a priest. And while that never happened for obvious reasons, I feel like my life has been a guided life. In those times that I was willing, in those times that I said yes to possibility, I was, let's say, rewarded. So in that way, I would say absolutely not, I am not exceptional. What I would say is that if one is able to come to a place of willingness to take a next step in some process, in some journey, in some pilgrimage, if you will, if one has the willingness of heart to do that, well, Jesus said it, knock and the door will be open. For me, Michael's story is a remarkable account of someone who has not only kept his faith after abuse, but has allowed it to guide his healing. It also shows that healing never occurs all at once, but step by step and over time. The bravery of survivors who are willing to tell their stories like this breaks cycles of abuse and secrecy. And we need to keep showing victims that when they're ready to tell their stories, they will be heard. We're going to take a two-week break to get ready for the second half of our season. But while we're away, we have a quick favor to ask. If Deliver Us has meant something to you, we would love it if you could share it with some people in your life. You can tweet about us at DeliverUsPod, rate and review us on Apple Podcast, or just send the show to anyone who you think would get something out of it. We want to keep reaching new people, and a little goes a long way. Deliver Us will be back with a new episode on April 11th. We'll hear from survivors who have become advocates, including the Fortney sisters. They'll explain why we need to take a close look at statute of limitation laws. I mean, just like murder, I mean, there should not be, I mean, it's really soul murder is what it is. We'll also hear why the church has been at times reluctant to support this kind of legislative action. You can't just talk about the Catholic Church. You can't just talk about the Boy Scouts. You can't just talk about the Southern Baptist Convention. They all have to be taken to task. Deliver Us is produced by America Media in collaboration with Spoke Studios. I'm Maggie Van Dorn, your host and an executive producer with Eric Sundra. Our producers are Sarah Esikoff, Rebecca Seidel, and Eloise Blondio, with assistance in concept and story development from Sam Sawyer and Carrie Weber. Promotion and outreach from Amber Smith. Production help from Kieran Freeman. 
Our sound design is by Rebecca Seidel. Our music was composed and produced by Chris McCormick. This episode was written and produced by me, Maggie Van Dorn. If you've been sexually assaulted, you can get confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline. The number for the hotline is 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. You can also visit www.rain.org. That's www.rain.org. If you are reporting sexual abuse from Catholic clergy or looking for support from the church, you can also contact your diocese victim assistance coordinator. Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash VAC.